Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we're going to forego our standard interview format and talk about 12 things that every coach and trainer needs to hear at some point in time during their career. Now, I don't know about you, but I firmly believe we have the best job in the world. Every day we get to show up and make a positive impact on the clients or the athletes that we work with. But just because training and coaching is fun and it's rewarding doesn't mean it's always easy, right? Every day isn't puppies and balloons. We don't show up and have clients that are hitting PRs every single day or they've lost two to three pounds every week like we'd like. Sometimes there's struggle in what we do. And, you know, with that being said, I've been lucky just based on when I grew up, when I was born, to have the internet to mentor me in a lot of different ways. And it started early on. I had people like Ian King and Charles Poliquin, guys that I looked up to and that I respected. As my career evolved, as I got into powerlifting, I had guys like Dave Tate and Louis Simmons, who to some degree became in-life mentors as I went and sought them out and worked, you know, and trained at their gym. But the best part for me was that that evolution slowly evolved because there's no replacing real life in your life mentors. So for me, it evolved into obviously Bill Hartman, who's been the greatest mentor that I could ever ask for. I've had him. I've had guys like Lee Taft. I've had, you know, to some degree, he's a colleague and a friend, but he's still a mentor to me. In some some ways, it's Joel Jameson. So, you know, I've been lucky because I've had people like this to bounce ideas off of, to help shape me and mold me as a coach. And while I may not be your mentor, right, I may not, you know, get to interact with you on a daily basis or call you or text you or whatever, I think sometimes there are things that we need to hear as coaches. So whether these things resonate with you right now today, I don't know. But I know at some point in your career, you're going to struggle. You're going to fail. You're going to have issues that come up. So I would just implore you, listen to the show now and today, but keep it on the back burner because there's going to be some point in time where one or numerous messages in the show will resonate with you. And I think they can help you get through some trying times in your career. So with that being said, let's start off. We got 12 things starting at number one. You've heard it before. You're going to hear it now again. Kiss. But it's not keep it simple, stupid, because you are not stupid. I guarantee you're a very smart individual. So kiss to me means keep it simple, sexy. Okay. So whenever I think about the kiss principle, I think about when our interns do their program defense. So if you know nothing about our our internship program at IFAST, it's To say the least, it's rigorous, right? These guys and gals are going through 12, 14, as many as 16 weeks of on-the-job training. And as they get towards the end, they're forced to write their own program, but more importantly, to defend their program to all of the IFAST staff. And let's be real, it's pretty intimidating. You know, when you've got Bill, myself, Eric, you know, Nikki, whoever else is sitting in that room collectively it can be really daunting. And just think about a couple years ago, right? It's me and Bill, it's Ty, it's Jay, it's Lance, people that have been in the building for five, 10 years, right? That's intimidating. So what's funny is when you watch these young interns and these young coaches write that first program, they are making things so freaking complex. It's ridiculous, right? We've got fancy exercises. We've got the triple block triphasic periodization scheme. It's just way too complicated. All right. So as coaches, as trainers, I think there's this certain this certain vibe early on, for lack of a better term, there's this certain feeling that we have to show how smart we are 
by how complex we make a program or how complex we make an exercise sound. And the goal isn't to make things complicated, right? The goal is to achieve an outcome. So you don't need triple block periodization. You don't need triphasic training. In fact, I was just listening to uh, different podcasts, the Just Fly Sports Performance Podcast, and Cal Dietz was on it. And Cal invented triphasic training. So he's probably pretty married to that idea and that concept. But he was talking about in this show, he's interacting with a coach. And this coach is like, yeah, I've got my 13-year-olds and they're doing triphasic. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, they don't need triphasic, right? They don't need triphasic training. They need a general physical base. They need to learn how to squat, hinge, push, pull, sprint, change directions. They need all the fundamental movements. They don't need that level of complexity. So the goal for you as a trainer or coach isn't to make things as complicated as as possible, but instead it should be to keep things as simple as you can for as long as you can. So unless you're training elite athletes and you've got them year round, you probably don't need anything fancy. In fact, if you've listened to a lot of my podcasts with high-level performance coaches, we're talking Major League Baseball, the NBA. I mean, these are some of the best athletes in the world. And a lot of their programs revolve around very basic exercises, very basic periodization schemes. Now, granted, part of that is they've got high-level athletes (laughs) and they can progress off the basics. But you know what? So can your young athletes. So can your gen pop clients. They don't need fancy stuff. Teach them the basics, and I guarantee it will pay off in droves down the line. So that's number one. Keep it simple, sexy. Number two, I hate to say this, my friend, and you may not like to hear it, but mistakes are key. Mistakes are key. Perfectionism was a huge issue for me when I was growing up, like literally thwarted my progress and my evolution for a long, long time because I tied my ability to, quote, be perfect to everything. I tied it to my self-esteem, my self-worth. We all know perfection isn't attainable, right? So what happens when you fail, right? What happens when you don't get 100 on that test, you get a 95 or a 90, right? That damages your self-esteem and your self-worth. And so when I failed, it was crushing to me. And that was just in school. Now imagine when I have an athlete and I don't get the outcome or the result that I want. Or worst case scenario, they might get injured. And luckily, I've had very few injuries you know, with my athletes over my career, but man, like that was devastating to me. So my point here is simple. First off, there is no such thing as perfect. There's no perfect coach. There's no perfect athlete. There's no perfect training program. There's no perfect exercise or coaching cue, right? And that's true, not in training, not just in coaching. And it's definitely true in life, right? There is no such thing as perfect. So get over it. Mistakes are part of it. Now, here's the real key. And this is something that's taken me 41 years to figure out. But it's not about in not making mistakes. But the key is to identify your mistakes faster. Determine where you might have gone wrong in your judgment and then make better predictions in the future. And this is something Bill's talked a lot about recently is this idea of as you gain experience, your prediction improves. And I think that's why I've talked about it for at least the last five, 10 years. Like there's no trading off your experience. So you can read every book known to man, but if you never get in the trenches, if you never get in the gym and coach somebody up, then you have no clue how it's going to actually pan out. So you have to be in there. You have to be in the arena. You have to make mistakes. And then the goal is from there, you start to identify why you made them and then you have a better prediction model going forward. 
So the goal isn't necessarily to make mistakes, right? And I think this is something that people are kind of almost putting out there now. It's not like you're going out there with the goal or the intent to make mistakes, but your goal is to recognize them when they occur and then use them to leverage your success down the line. So understand, mistakes are key. They're part of the gig. You're going to have them. But the goal going forward is to identify them, figure out why they happened, and then make better predictions and better judgments going forward. Number three, different does not equal better. And I'm just going to lead this with a very simple comment. People on the gram are crazy. Like, I think I've seen it all, or there are times that I think I've seen it all, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, and now Instagram. It's like, man, people out there will do anything to get you to notice them, whether it's what they wear, what they say, or even just the exercises that they perform. And I think if you have half a brain, your general inclination is to think, whoa, well, that that person's doing something totally different. And there's that element of social proof, right? Like, oh my gosh, this person has 10,000 likes or they've got 100,000 followers. Like they must know what they're doing. Well, maybe, but maybe not, right? We have that natural inclination to assume that if we're not doing something, that we're somehow wrong or that somehow the other person is right. But before you do this, right? Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. But here's just a very, very short list of the things that I think you need to consider before you move and start implementing whatever exercise or whatever they're espousing, right, in their feet. Number one, who is this person working with? What is their age, ability, experience level, etc. right? You got to start calling out context. How long have they been working with them? Somebody you've worked with for a week is a lot different than somebody you've worked with for a month. It's a lot different than somebody you've been working with for a year or 10 years, right? What are the person's goals that they're working with? What equipment do they have available to them? If you're working in a small garage gym, it's a lot different than being in a multi-million dollar elite NBA or NFL training facility. What is that coach or trainer's training philosophy, right? What do they believe in? What are the key tenets of their philosophy? That's one of the big questions I ask on this show virtually every week. Tell me about your philosophy so I can get to a better idea as to what they believe in. Is this something they're actually doing, right? You might want to put a star by that one right? Because just because it looks cool on the gram doesn't mean they're actually using it with all of their clients or their athletes. Maybe it's something they use with 1% of the population. So if I flash a video of Glenn Robinson doing band assisted jumps, I might use that with everybody, but that doesn't mean everybody is going to perform it with the level of execution that he is, right? He is an super elite athlete, right? So you have to ask yourself, is this something they're actually doing? Or is it just something that looks cool that they're throwing on social media? And that's fine too. Like, I really don't have an issue with that. The only thing that I would ask in a lot of cases is say, hey, look, this person is elite, super strong, a freak, whatever, so that there's context behind it. So that's just a short list. But you have to start to ask yourself questions, right? Don't just blindly see something and say, oh, yeah, that looks cool. I'm going to start doing that. Start to ask yourself, why are they doing it? What's their intent? What equipment do they have available to them? What's their philosophy? Then you can start to call out where you might actually want to use something that you've seen on the gram and implement it into your programs. So just keep in mind here, the key isn't to be different, but to do things better. I can't stress that highly enough. It's not to just be different. It's to do things better. And it's not you against someone else. It's you against yourself. Can you constantly improve your skills whether it's coaching, whether it's exercise selection, whether it's program design, can you get better day in and day out, week in and week out? Because at the end of the day, different 
does not equal better. As the saying goes, there's many paths that lead to Rome. Number four, trust your instincts. And I'm going to use myself as an example here because I've been in this game almost 21 years now. I've been doing this for for more than a, a, a few decades, which is crazy to think about. It makes me feel really old all at the same time. But man, I've seen a lot of stuff and I've been around long enough to see stuff that was old when I was young. And now as I've aged, it is new again, whether it's pre-exhaust, whatever, whatever. So I've seen a lot of stuff. And and one thing that that makes me upset with myself is that I'd like to think I'm, I'm not the smartest guy, but I'm not the dumbest guy either. And I've seen a lot of stuff. And sometimes I've willfully gone against my own instincts because somebody has said this is a better way to do things. Case in point, one of my basketball players, this was like two years ago. This dude is like just living in a propulsive phase, as Bill would describe it. I mean, this guy's feet are pronated, his femurs are IR'd, he's in a position of anterior pelvic tilt, he's got a concentric pelvic diaphragm. This dude is trying to propel and produce force all the time. So if this dude's femurs are IR'd, why on earth would I put a ball in between his knees and have him work on a reaching squat that way? No reason right? Like there's no good reason for that. Like my eyes are telling me this is the wrong thing to do. Yet people had said, oh, this is the right thing to do. So you should do it. And I did. So I tell you this because I've made this mistake and I don't want you to make this mistake. It's so hard nowadays as a coach to trust your own instincts because everybody out there has an opinion on how you should do your job, how you should coach your clients, how you should coach your athletes, right? And I come back to this saying, I tried to attribute it to the original author, couldn't find it, so I'm going to attribute it to somebody in our field. Dan Pfaff is famous for saying, if it looks right, it flies right. Now, it's an aviation saying, but it holds so true when it comes to clients and athletes as well. If somebody's lined up, if they move efficiently, that is the basis for everything that we do. So as coaches, we have to learn to trust our instincts and act on it. If somebody is kyphotic, don't let anybody tell you that they have an extended thorax, right? Now, they may have elements of compensation up the spine, right? But that person's anterior chest walls are closed down. You got to figure out some way to open that up. If somebody is standing in a gross amount of anterior pelvic tilt and IR, don't put a ball in between their knees, right? You have to figure out the strategy that's going to fix the client or athlete standing in front of you. And this is a discussion I've had so many times with my interns. And, you know, sometimes you have those discussions and it's like you're saying something to somebody, but you're kind of saying it to yourself as well. Well, this is me because I've told my intern this so many times about week six or week eight of an internship. So about the midway point, there's this light bulb moment for a lot of our interns at IFAS and they start to realize, oh, man, I'm seeing a lot of stuff and I feel like I want to fix it, but I don't know why it's happening. And so what I always tell them is, look. You don't have to know why it's happening right now. In fact, I'm okay with you not knowing the why. Like we're still unpacking these whys. What I thought was the why five years ago is different than I thought it was 10 years ago. And it's different vastly than it was 15 or 20 years ago. So the why could change. But at the end of the day, just fix it. And you'll figure out the why as you go. So if somebody is in this awful knock knee position when they squat, you'll fix it, right? If somebody's in a poor half kneeling position, and they're sagging on that down knee, right? Fix it. You don't have to know the why. Just try and get them in a better position because ultimately that's going to pay massive dividends. Even furthermore, they probably don't care about the why. 
maybe five to 10% of your people do, but ultimately they just want to move better, feel better, perform better on the field, whatever. Okay. So I'm going to say this and I'm going to really try and emphasize it. Be bold. Don't be afraid to coach your clients and athletes. Don't listen to what every guru out there tells you, right? Train the person in front of you. Trust what your eyes are telling you. And I guarantee you're going to get better results. All right. So number four, trust your instincts. Number five, this concept of checking boxes. And I talked about this a ton in my complete coach certification. If you missed out on it last or this, this current year, excuse me, you can get on the, the insiders list, go to completecoachcertification.com, opening up again in March of 2020. But I've made this mistake more times than I care to remember, whether it's foam rolling, whether it's corrective exercises, breathing and resets. I have had this mindset up. I know better. I know what my clients and athletes need, and I'm going to check boxes for myself because, damn it, I know what they need, and I'm going to fix them. Instead, what I should have been doing was listening to what my client or athlete was telling me and listening to them. And just knowing that, you know, in spite of all my infinite wisdom, that they should probably have some say in the process. All right. So when it comes to checking boxes, you have to ask yourself, who are you checking boxes for? Are you checking boxes just for yourself or are you checking boxes for them? And if you you find yourself constantly checking boxes for yourself, here's what I'd ask you to do. Number one, be malleable. As a coach, I think it's just imperative that you're malleable and that you find ways to get the desired training effect while listening to what your clients or athletes are telling you. There's a lot of ways to skin a cat, right? And just because they may not like doing exercise X doesn't mean you can't go with exercise Y, right? So be malleable, be creative, right? Just because you don't have a solution in your toolbox right now, that's okay. Maybe there's another toolbox out there or another tool that you can add. You're just unaware of it right now. So I think sometimes when you're with these problematic, I don't want to say they're problematic, but if you're with these maybe challenging clients or people that are testing you a little bit as a coach, those are the people that make you better. So you have to shift your mindset. Don't think of them as, oh, this person's a pain in my ass. Think, no, like this person is challenging me. They're going to force me to grow whether I like it or not. All right. So be creative. You don't have a solution right now. Is there's one? Is there one available to you that you haven't learned about yet? And last, I'd say be empathetic, right? If you don't have another solution, do your best to empathize with them and acknowledge what they're feeling while describing why this is important to their success. And like a great example here is breathing and resets. There's a love-hate relationship with breathing and resets. And I've had everything from elite athletes to 70 and 80-year-old retired people complain that they don't like laying on the ground and doing breathing exercises. Okay, So if I can't find something else as an alternative, then maybe it's on me to try and educate them and find some give and take here. And I remember the days back in, who knows, 2010, when we had people doing like five resets and it would take like 25 minutes before a training session would start, right? Like that's ridiculous. So instead of doing five, maybe you can just do one, but you educate that client or that athlete and you explain why this is important and you give them context as to how it's going to help them achieve their goals. That's what training and coaching is all about. It's finding a middle ground. Okay. So at the end of the day, training isn't about you. It's not about your ego. It's not about your system. It's about getting your clients and athletes results. And ultimately it's about making them feel like they're a part of the process. I think this is one reason why I've had such great retention 
with my clients and athletes over the years, the people I've worked with personally, because I've always made them feel like they're a part of the process. I always make them feel like I'm listening to them and that we're going to work together to give them the best possible outcome. So just make sure you can check some boxes for yourself, but make sure that you're checking some boxes for them as well along the way. Number six, experimentation versus novelty. And I remember Stu McMillan talking about this. It's probably been four or five years ago now. And Stu was outlining his recipe for writing a program. Now, I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't remember the exact percentages, but hopefully you'll get the gist. Essentially, what Stu said when he laid out a new program, 80% of the program was stuff that he knew worked, right? It was probably basic foundational stuff. He knew it was going to give him a desired or intended result. He knew it was going to move the needle forward. 10% was stuff that he thought would work. It's stuff that he probably experimented with in the past, things that he thought had given him some level of success, and so he was willing to put those in. And then the final 10% was stuff that was very experimental. So you think about that, okay, 80% basics, that's stuff I think we can all agree on, right? We know the stuff that gives us the desired effect. It's this last 10 to 20% that we love to get so caught up in. So when we start talking about experimentation versus novelty, just no one understand experimentation is fine. In fact, I think experimentation is how we grow, it's how we evolve, and hopefully over the course of time, it's how we write better programs or choose better exercises. So in some cases, yeah, I still coach a squat, right? But now I don't coach a back squat as often. Instead, I choose a front squat or a goblet squat. And how I coach those may be a little bit different, all right? And sometimes, beyond experimentation, there's even a place for novelty. Just trying stuff that's new or fun, right? But here's where I would pump the brakes on that. When you're constantly seeking novelty, I think there's a problem. Either you're unsure of your philosophy, you're unsure of, you know, maybe the intended goal, or you're just trying to entertain a client, all right? So constantly choosing novelty for novelty's sake, at least in my opinion, is a recipe for zero to no progress over the long term. Remember, everything works in the short term. Everything works with a low-level untrained client. But the longer that person works with you, if you're constantly just seeking out novelty and changing things just for the sake of changing things you're not going to get the results that you want. So I think it's your goal as a trainer or as a coach to find ways to experiment and progress without constantly seeking novelty. And I think this is something that I've always tried to do at least to some degree, right? And keep in mind, a lot of people would say my programs are probably pretty vanilla and I'm okay with that. There's a reason vanilla is the most popular ice cream of all time. But at the same time, I'm constantly trying to find ways to experiment and add little doses of novelty to keep motivation high, to keep people coming back. And I'm constantly trying to find ways to challenge them, whether it's via increased load, increased complexity. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can evolve a training program without just simply choosing a different exercise, right? Or doing something just to be different. So don't be afraid to experiment. Just don't overdo it. And don't do it all at once, right? If your training block from month one to month two looks entirely different with regards to set rep schemes, exercise selection, all that, then I would question, you know, the validity of that program. Again, it may work in the short term or with a low-level client, but the longer you work with somebody, the less likely that is to succeed. And just keep in mind that as well, novelty is fine from time to time. I do that. 
from time to time with my clients, with my athletes to keep things fresh. But if you're constantly leaning on novelty, then there's an issue. All right. So number six, just keep in mind, there's differences between experimentation and novelty, and you've got to find a healthy blend of those two in your programs. Number seven, N equals one. N equals one. And I don't know about you, but I hate at this point in time, I hate reading research articles or I hate reading when somebody writes about a squat routine or a deadlift routine and they say, oh, you know, this program put an average of 10 kilograms on the participant's squat, right? Because that would lead you to believe that everybody in the program put 10 kilograms or 22 pounds on their squat, run one rep max over the course of that, that training block. Because what it really boils down to is you have 10 or 15 or 20 individuals that all saw an individual result. So when you start diving in and you read that, you know, that article and you start to understand, oh, about 50% got that average response. Maybe they got a 15 to 25 pound increase, but then there's 30% that got a really good response, right? Like maybe they added like 35, 40 pounds. So they just crushed it. But then on the downside, there's 20%. They got a negative response. Maybe they saw no change or maybe they even got worse. Okay. So the goal shouldn't be to look at averages, but to remember that when we're training clients, we have to look at individual effects. So when we train somebody, training is always N equals one. And even more importantly, that one changes every single day. When that person comes in and trains with you on Monday morning, they are different than they were when you saw them on Friday, for better or worse. Maybe they slept great, had a super relaxing weekend, they're just super chill, they're ready to go. You know, they're a different person than they were Friday. On the flip side, maybe somebody trained with you on Friday and they crushed it, and then Friday they crushed, you know, all the wings, all of the beer, stayed up till three in the morning, you know, went up, tailgated Saturday, stayed up till three again on Saturday night, Sunday, stayed in their bed all day just trying to rehydrate and pray to the porcelain God or whatever they were doing. And then Monday, they come back and they feel like dog doo-doo when they see you, all right? So you just have to understand that everything is individual in what we do. So you can't just think, oh, this is the best fat loss program I've ever written. I'm gonna give it to every fat loss client that I see now. No, because it might've been the best fat loss program for that one person at that one period of time. And maybe they're a 20 something that dialed in their nutrition and their recovery and their sleep and they crushed it. But for the 45-year-old or the 60-year-old fat loss client that comes into your gym, it's too high volume. It's too much stress. They can't recover. And now you're putting them in a, in a hyper-stressed state where, you know, they actually put on weight or they get injured, okay? So as the saying goes, individual results may vary. You have to understand that every person is a unique individual. And every day you train them, they're a little bit different than the last time you saw them. Now, one thing I want to note here is that templates and buckets are fine, right? Like I have no issue with this. I think, and I've said this before, if every program you write is a Mona Lisa, a one-of-a-kind type program, I think you're wasting your time. I think you're spending too much time on your programming. Instead, the more clients you see, the more you can start to create templates or buckets that you build from, but you still have to individualize that program based on where that client's at you know, what they can recover from, the exercises they have available to them, this, that, and the other, what their recovery is like. There's so many factors. 
So templates and buckets are fine, but you have to individualize because everything that we do comes down to the individual. Number eight, this is a little bit off the training track, but I think it is nonetheless very important for you to hear. Number eight, you got to take care of yourself. And coming back to my own life in 2008, when I was doing the in-home thing, keep it, well, let's go even further back. Let's go to 02 to 05. When I'm in Fort Wayne, I was training four times a week. I was competitive in powerlifting. You know, I, my only goal in life was to get super strong. June of 2005, I have a minor knee surgery on my left knee. July 2005, Jess and I moved to Indianapolis. And from July of 05 to, I don't know, June of 08, I did in-home training. So I did in-home, one-on-one personal training. And with that came just a really wonky work schedule. Like I would work 6 a.m. in the morning to like 9, and then I'd have generally a big gap. Then maybe I'd have an afternoon client and then I'd work again in the evening from like four to seven. So sometimes I'd have like a really consistent training schedule, sometimes not so much. But one thing that happened over that time was I continued to train sort of like a power lifter, but I definitely continued to eat like a power lifter. So it was this bad mix. And I remember I got on the scale one day and I hadn't done a powerlifting meet in three years at the time. And I just realized, oh my gosh, I'm legitimately about 20 pounds overweight and I'm not sleeping enough. I needed like a full body reset. So at the end of the day, I had to take a hard look at myself and I realized, look, I'm not training hard enough. I'm not earning my calories based on what I'm taking in. So I'm eating too much. I'm most definitely not sleeping enough. Like I need to get myself right. So I tell you all this because I think this happens to all of us periodically. Now, keep in mind, there, there's also probably this elite 5, 10, maybe 15% of the people in our industry that can just keep their body dialed in year-round. And if you're one of those people, kudos. I applaud you. That's impressive. Like, I'm just going to say, I have, you know, these waxing and waning periods where, you know, some most of the time I'm pretty dialed in, but I have those moments too where eh, kind of fall off the wagon a little bit. And it happens, right? We... We go through these phases where we put the needs of others in front of our own. It's this selflessness that I think a lot of us have as trainers and coaches. Or in some cases, we put our other needs, whether that's making money, crushing business, swooning a loved one, in front of our own. So the hard part or the downside to this is sometimes that works in the short run. Like we don't really notice, like if you're in pretty good shape and you kind of back off your training for a little bit and you start crushing work or you really dive into a relationship or whatever, you don't really notice those, those negative side effects. It's that whole slight edge principle, right? Things are easy to do, but they're also easy not to do. And you don't really notice it until the accumulated effect starts to seep in. So it might work for you in the short term, but it never works out in the long run. And what ends up happening is we're overweight or maybe out of shape we're tired, we're depressed, we're anxious. And as a whole, we just don't feel our best. So it's really hard. But at this point in time, I'm okay being selfish. I know that I need to take care of me first. And I've had some backlash for saying this in the past because I've got a beautiful wife that I'm madly in love with. I've got two amazing little people. I've got two successful businesses. But I also know and understand that if I don't take care of myself, all of that other stuff gets taken down, not one, not two, but about five to 10 notches because I'm not at my best, all right? So I know for me, the big four are training, nutrition, sleep, meditation. I only had 25 minutes today, but I snuck a workout in right before I recorded this show. 
probably why I sounded a little bit out of breath when I started, but I knew I had to get a training session in. I got up a little bit earlier today because I knew I wouldn't have time throughout the rest of the day to meditate. So I got that in. So I'm checking all these boxes. And I also know when I do this, everything else in my life falls into place. I'm a better husband. I'm a better dad. I'm a better owner of my businesses. I am better at life when I take care of myself. So here's a really key point. You don't find time to take care of you. Finding time is a myth. In fact, it may be the biggest myth that we have out there. If you ever find yourself saying, oh, I'll find time. No, you will not. Won't happen. Won't work. If it's important, you have to make time. You have to make time to take care of yourself. And it should be the first thing in your calendar each week. Whatever is important to you, whether it's training, whether it's meal prep, meditation, sleep. If you have to schedule sleep, do it, right? Like I'm at a point now where I know when I have to go to bed to wake up feeling refreshed and to get enough high quality sleep. Because as the saying goes, failing to plan is planning to fail. You have to take care of yourself. And when you accept that, when you make time for yourself, everything in your life will be infinitely better. All right. Soapbox. I'm stepping off it right now. Okay. Number nine, just understand that you will have success and failure both in and out of the gym. And I think for all of us, not just me, but for all of us, sometimes we need changes in our life to realize there's more to life than just the gym. And I've had two really salient points that come to mind when I start thinking about this. Number one, for me, my kids, especially Kendall, because she was my first, really changed the trajectory of my life. And without getting into all of the the sort of details, I'm sure at some point I can discuss all these, but I was really on just an unhealthy and unsustainable path for probably the first 10 years of my career. A lot of stuff played into that, but I just know when we had Kindle, all of my priorities changed. All of my focus in life changed. It's not to say that I was any less focused on being great at what I did or running a great business, but it enhanced all of those things, right? It like put it under a microscope and it just forced me to change who I was at my core. And so for me, the kids were such an important thing. And, you know, now my kids are a little bit older. They're no less special. They're no less amazing. But at six and eight, that novelty has worn off to some degree, right? So for me here recently, it was fostering dogs. And I know I talked about this a little bit on the show, but we fostered two dogs here in about the last month. And it's been such a rewarding experience. You know, dogs that, you know, one was displaced from their home because the neighbor kids were messing with it and it bit at it. You know, beautiful, amazing dog that needed a home, just needed a week of good care. So we had that dog and then we had a second dog who was basically a stray, you know, underweight, had lost fur, had some skin infections. It was in rough shape. And so you could have the worst day at work and people with dogs know this. You could have the worst day at work or the worst day of your life. And when you walk in that door, that dog is freaking excited to see you, right? Wagging its tail, tongue out. So my point here is this. Number one, nobody goes through life undefeated, right? Doesn't matter. In the gym, in life, nobody's undefeated. As you go through life, coaching, training, we're all going to pick up some scars, right? Like them or not. In my opinion, the goal is to accumulate as many wins as you can and recognize that when you play the game, the game of life, the game of coaching, training, some losses are bound to occur. And I hate to say this, my New England fans, 
uh, it pains me to say this, but like Bill Belichick is probably the greatest coach in the NFL, right? Even he's got some losses. He's lost some games he should have won. He's lost some Super Bowls, but he's still the greatest, right? So understand you're trying to get as many wins as you can, but there's going to be losses in every aspect of your life. But here's a really big point. Perhaps more importantly, the wins and losses at the end of your day, the thing that you could always hang your hat on is the effort that you put in to your life or to becoming a great trainer or coach that really matters. We talk a lot about goals and we talk about, you know, I want to make X amount of money or da 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 or whatever. Those goals are great. And I think you need targets for yourself, but you need those goals that you can work towards every single day. You can check the box every day of, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to do 30 minutes of continuing education. I'm going to give my best effort when I'm with my clients and athletes, right? So just start to check that box every day. Successes, failures, they're going to happen. Put in the effort every day to make yourself great. And there's a couple sayings here that I love. Number one, you know, don't get too high when you win and don't get too low when you lose. We're going to have wins and losses every day. Doesn't matter. Don't get too high when you win. Don't get too too low when you lose. And it also comes back to a point from an earlier podcast. You know, this is something that I try and live by, but you take your work seriously, take your career seriously. You want to be great. You want to be your best version of yourself, but don't take yourself seriously. Strive to be a great coach. Strive to be a great trainer, but also understand that, hey, look, I got the best job in the world. It should be fun. It should be your pleasure to go into work every single day. So you're bound to have successes and failures, both in and out of the gym. Use them, learn from them, let them motivate you. But don't let the wins or the losses define who you are in life. All right, number 10, watch your bias or your biases. So I think back to my days as a hardcore power lifter and I thought everything was solved by squatting, benching, and deadlifting. So literally, I would get a fat loss client in and if they were in three days a week, their program was going to be built around a squat, a bench press, and a deadlift. And of course, I didn't have the foresight to see, oh, this person has awful shoulder mobility. Maybe I shouldn't have them back squatting or this person's back is wrecked. Maybe I shouldn't have them doing a barbell deadlift. So when you're writing a program, it comes back to who are you checking boxes for? And if it's just checking boxes for yourself, you got you got to pump the brakes, figure out what is best for my client or what is best for my athlete. I think another thing that you need to ask yourself when you're writing a program, and if you find all of your programs are eerily similar to your training, you have to ask yourself, are they doing it just because you're doing it? Or are you actually doing it because it's best for the person that you're training? Because I keep coming back to this point, training isn't about you. Like remove yourself from the equation. You are there to help them see progress. You are their guide. You're their mentor. So it's your job to give them the best training program for them, to give them the coaching cues that work best for them. So training isn't about you. It's not about your ego, what exercise you like, and it's definitely not, definitely not how you want to train yourself. Unless you're a power lifter and you coach power lifters in a powerlifting gym, what you do to see success probably does not translate to any of your clients and athletes unless their sole goal is to get stronger. So when it comes to watching your biases, you've got to write the program that will get them the results they want, period. Make it simple. Write the program that will get them the results 
they want. Number 11, and this and number 12 are somewhat similar. I was gonna lump them together, but I like the idea of having 12. So 11, enjoy the moment. So this past weekend, we enjoyed fall break and decided it was a crazy week at work for a lot of reasons, but I knew Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday, I was taking the kids to Cincinnati. We were getting out of town because we weren't gonna do like a full like week getaway like we've done in the past. Flights to Florida are ludicrous, and so I just said, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. But I said, I want to do something. So we go to Cincinnati, and on Saturday, we took the kids to Kings Island. And I can tell you it was one of the most memorable days of my entire life. Just all the stars were in alignment. The sky was beautiful. It was like 70 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. The kids had an absolute blast, and just seeing the sheer fun and the joy on their faces was all that I needed. Like that is burned in my memory forever. So as much as I would love to just ramble on about my kids, when it comes back to you, you have to recognize the fact that all you have is now. And numerous people have said this, but if you're constantly living in the past, you're probably depressed. You're just thinking about the past and what happened and you're just living that time over and over again. But if you're constantly worried about the future, that's anxiety, right? So the goal is not to dwell on the past, it's not to focus on the future, but to live in the moment, enjoy what's going on right now. And your goal, I think, should be to strive to be truly present wherever you are and with whatever you're doing. And I've talked about this a couple of times, I keep coming back to that Ryan, Ryan Horn quote of, you know, be where your feet are. Don't worry about where you were in the past or where you're going in the future. Like do your best job right now. Give the client or athlete standing in front of you your best effort. Every time you step on the gym floor, it should be your goal to give them the best possible workout or training session that they've ever had. And this is one area where meditation has been huge for me. I really struggled to get the meditation train going for a long time. I applaud Headspace for getting me focused. I just dialed it in for one year. And I said, I'm going to do this every day for a full year. And now I've moved on from that. And I spent some money last month and just did a four day intensive on transcendental meditation because it's sort of guru-esque, but you know, you have to go in there four days straight for 90 minutes at a time. And they basically teach you how to do transcendental meditation. But One thing that it's done for me is meditation has afforded me this ability to focus, prioritize, and stay in the moment. And I think, especially for me, it's truly impressive because I'm somebody that is easily distracted. I think now with all the notifications and social media and all the other stuff that's available to us, distraction is arguably the biggest thing that we're fighting these days. At work, on the home front, we're never really dialed into what we're doing. So, Not to say you have to meditate, I'm just saying it's been a huge boon for me to help me enjoy and stay in the moment. So at the end of the day, don't worry about the past or the future, be in the moment. Do whatever it is you're doing right now at the highest level possible. So it could be training a client, it could be doing your con ed, it could be spending time with your husband, your wife, your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, your kids. Be in the moment, be where your feet are, and I guarantee you're gonna be so much happier as a result. Last but not least, number 12, you have the best job. And I realize this is gonna be cheesy, but I'm gonna put it out there anyway. There have been 
numerous times throughout my career where I have to pause and look at my gym and see who I'm coaching or see who I'm training and think, man, like this is it. Like this is what I have worked so hard for. And I I just can clearly think there was a time early when I was coaching soccer players and I had Daniel Rourke and I had Chad Marshall. I mean, these were two elite lever MLS talents and I'm working with them at the same time. It happened with Roy when I first got to coach him. It worked numerous times this summer because, you know, I've kind of danced around the fact for a long, long time, but I've always wanted to be in the basketball space and I've always wanted to train high level basketball guys. So this summer where that's basically all I did for the whole summer Like that's when I have to pause and reflect and think, man, I have the best job, but it's not just me, right? You have the best job. And if you ever discredit that, or you ever think that's not true, I would ask you to pause, right? Either before you go on shift or when you're working with a client and just realize that every day you get to make an impact on how people feel every day. You get the power to help someone improve, not just the physical aspect of their life, but literally every aspect of their life because there's a synergistic effect to fitness. You know it and I know it. When you have a great workout, the whole rest of your day is better. Everything about your life is better. Food tastes better. Your relationships feel stronger. You feel more dialed in at work. Fitness is a linchpin or it is a keystone habit that drives everything else in your life forward. So if you haven't done it lately, remind yourself that you have an amazing job And you can be impactful on somebody's life every single day you step on the gym floor. All right, my friend. So let's bring all this together. 12 things that every coach and trainer needs to hear at some point in time. Let's run it back real quick. Number one, keep it simple, sexy. You don't need triple block, triphasic training with a 10-year-old kid. Keep it simple. Give them the basics. Build a strong foundation. Every client, every athlete you work with will need it. Number two. Mistakes are key. The goal isn't necessarily to make mistakes, but to understand that they will happen, to recognize why they happened, and then create better prediction models in the future. Number three, different does not equal better. In most instances, and in most cases, the basics are gonna give you the best outcome. Number four, trust your instincts. Who cares what the gurus say? Who cares what somebody tells you you should be doing? You're with that client or with that athlete in that moment. Give them what they need. Trust yourself. Go with your gut. And most of the time, you will be more successful. Number five, who are you checking boxes for? Are you checking boxes for your clients and athletes? Or are you checking all the boxes for yourself? You've got to find a balance. Number six, finding ways to balance experimentation and novelty. Experimentation is fine. In fact, I think it's critical for creativity. But novelty for novelty's sake means something else is missing. Number seven, all training is N equals one. What works today or for this client may not work tomorrow or for another client. Recognize that every day is unique, every client is unique, and when you start to look at how individuals respond to exercise, it's going to absolutely change the way you write programs and you coach your clients and athletes. Number eight, take care of yourself first. Train your body. Fuel your body, sleep, meditate. They're the four bedrocks. You do those four things, you can thank me later. Number nine, understand that there's gonna be success and failure both in and outside of the gym. The gym is our happy place, 
but it shouldn't be our only place. Wins and losses are going to happen. Make it your job to put in the effort every single day to get better. Number 10, watch your biases. What works for you may or may not work for them. 11, enjoy the moment. And number 12, just remember, you have the best job. Stop, pause, and realize how powerful of an impact you have on people's lives. And you get to do it every freaking day, my friend. All right, so that does it for today's episode. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please do me a solid. Share it on the gram. Send it to a friend, trainer, colleague, anybody that you think would benefit from hearing my message. I would truly appreciate it. And so, my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.